Welcome to my podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have, and debunking some of the myths around our health. And it's such a great privilege today to have on Rachel Lancaster, which is long overdue. And she's going to talk to us about, <coughs> excuse me, the magnificent midlife. Rachel is the author of Magnificent Midlife, Transform Your Middle Years, Menopause and Beyond. And she's the host of the Magnificent Midlife podcast. After a shocking early menopause diagnosis at age 41, which she's going to tell us about, she scratched her own itch and created what she wasn't able to find for herself. This includes one-to-one and group midlife mentoring, courses and educational resources to help women vibrantly transition through the sometimes messy middle of life. She's also the founder of Menno Clarity, which is a great privilege that I am part of, which is the information hub about menopause. And in her spare time, she's doing a master's in, I hope I pronounce this right, gerontology, which she's going to have to tell us about. So in today's podcast, I want to start by talking about the menopause, but I'm going to move on quite swiftly. So this is going to be a podcast in two parts, and we're going to talk about positive aging. So Rachel, welcome. And let's start by talking about your menopause journey and why you felt it was important to write a book called Your Magnificent Midlife. Goodness me, I've got to go right back to the beginning, haven't I, almost. Um, So when I was 41, as you mentioned in the intro, I was given a diagnosis of early menopause. And it sent me off on a journey, which may or may not have been the correct journey. I don't think it was, but it sent me off on this journey anyway. So why did I get that diagnosis? I was trying for another child and I was testing out my fertility. And I was doing that because the man who might be going to make a baby with me had had a vasectomy. (laughs) And before he went under the snip, I thought it was only the best thing to do was to check whether my hormones were all right. But it was a bit of a shock when the doctor came back and literally said to me, you have gone through menopause. There is no chance of you conceiving a child. Now, I now know that you have technically gone through menopause if you are a year post your last period, if you're over 50, and two years post your last period, if you're under 50. Well, I certainly wasn't that. Certainly wasn't that. So I think the diagnosis was wrong. Um, But that's what I was given. And I left the doctor's office with a packet of pregnant mare's urine HRT and was just told to go away and get on with it. (laughs) So I think it's got a bit better since then. I know there are lots of complaints about doctors and menopause now, but I think it has improved quite dramatically. I don't like to accept anything. I am very, very curious. So I went off and I went discovering all sorts of things. And the first thing I went to was a conference by the Daisy Network, which is an organization that helps people who have been, who gone through early menopause. And I went to their conference and I immediately felt a bit like a charlatan because there were women there who were much, much younger than me. And they desperately wanted children and I already had one. So I felt a bit like a fraud. But that conference did introduce me to two people who would play an important part in my journey. One of those was um, Dr. Nick Panay, who was uh, an early menopause. Well, he was a menopause specialist, but he was specializing in early menopause at that time. And the other was Dr. Marilyn Glenville, who was a nutritionist. Now, I went to see her and she put me on a special diet. and She gave me a special herbal tincture, which I think had some Agnes Castors in it, but I'm not very sure. But she basically told me to strip out any possibility of toxins in my diet. She told me to eat regularly so that I balance my blood sugar levels. No caffeine, no sugar, no alcohol, everything organic. Even my personal skincare products would be organic. Within five weeks, I was bleeding again. So I was very confused, but also very happy. I went back to the doctor, I had another hormone test. Oh, yes, you're absolutely fine. You're not through menopause after all. You can go ahead and have the reverse vasectomy to him indoors, who was going to go, crikey, really? So he went and did it. It didn't work. We didn't get the baby, but I've written the book and I consider the book as my baby. 
So that is why I wrote the book, because I came out of that doctor's office and I felt like a dried up old prune. Nobody had actually said that to me, but I had bought into all the negative narratives about menopause and about female aging. And I thought it was the end of my meaningful life. I thought I went from being sexy woman to completely unsexy woman, sort of like overnight, you know. And gradually, I realized that that was a load of rubbish. And I realized that I could create my own narratives and that actually what we're told and what we're told still today about menopause, some of it's completely wrong. Some of it's just really biased in a particularly negative way. And if we want to have a different experience of menopause, we can do that. We can reframe it. We can rebrand it. Um, and I just wanted women to have what I couldn't find because back then, it was 16 years ago now, I'm 57, there was nothing there for me. And over the years, you know, menopause books were written, but they were again very sort of factual, very medical, very, um, very negative. I found them. So I thought, I want to write something that is more inspiring, that is more looking at the whole transition of midlife, not just menopause, because there's so much more to midlife than just menopause. In my book, I talk about midlife being this cake. And, you know, I want menopause to be like one or two slices of your midlife cake, unless you think menopause is wonderful, like me now, and you can have as many slices as you like in your cake. But otherwise, I don't want it to be this sort of like great big thing, because there's so much else going on. Um, before we go on to the menopause, tell us about your MSc. Oh, so, well, I keep wanting to sort of leave menopause behind, but it keeps dragging me back. And one of my efforts to leave menopause behind was to move on to the next stage. So I'm studying gerontology, the study of ageing, um, and my book and the work I've done has taught me so much about how gendered ageism is so linked to menopause and is so linked to our experience of menopause. And so that sort of naturally has taken me on into the study of gerontology and I'm loving it. I just love it. Um, it's fascinating. And tell us, tell us about your podcast. How long have you been doing it and how many episodes have you done? I've done 150 episodes and I can't really believe it. I say that out loud and go, blimey, have I really done 150 episodes? But I have. Um, and, I've, and I've been doing it for about four years. So I do it in seasons and then I have a break. So I'm currently in a break right now. Um, but I absolutely love it. I'm so passionate about it. I know you're really passionate about your podcast as well. And it's, I just love it. Um, there are so many stories to tell. There are so many things to talk about. There are so many myths to bust. There are so much clarity to bring to the whole everything life, midlife debate. So, yeah, I love it. That's a great segue into meno clarity. <laughs> so tell us, <laughs> tell, tell the guests why why you set it up and why we're all on board and why this is so important before we start dissecting the perimenopause in a little bit more detail. I'm so excited about menoclarity. Um, it feels like the culmination of what I've been doing. And what happened is, you know, I invited you to come on my podcast. You were an early guest on my podcast, probably about three years ago now. And I've met all these women on the podcast because part of what I talk about is menopause. But again, it's like the midlife cake. It's not all about menopause. It's about midlife and beyond. And gradually, I started talking to more women. And we're all sort of going, there's something wrong here. We're glad that we're talking more about menopause. But why is it so negative? Why is it going down one route? Why are we now talking about it being a deficiency? You know, are we deficient postmenopause? Am I, as a postmenopausal woman, deficient now for the rest of my life? No. So 
I think last year I just we got we all got together on Zoom, didn't we? And um, we just had a brainstorm, and then we thought, let's let's do something. Let's actually do something because the pendulum has swung too far, and there's too much scaremongering, and there's too much fear. There's so much fear out there about menopause now, and that is not the way it should be. It really shouldn't be like that. So. We all got together and then we launched in February this year and we've just done our first live online event at the end of September and it it's just, I'm so excited by it. I think the women involved in it are all amazing. We are all so different and we all have such different things to bring and yet we all agree that this can be a transformational time in a woman's life we are in no way deficient and that there are lots and lots of options for giving us more agency in our own personal experience of perimenopause. And I'm, I'm recommending to people to watch the uh, TV comedy, The Change, and there's some absolutely classic lines, but it makes me think of Menno Clarity and, and beyond because she said that she's I think it's at the last episode, she says she now feels she's part of a tribe of amazing women. And when she said that, I thought, we are. We're, we're a tribe. Yeah. And and every woman should be in it. But as you say, there is some controversy. So let's let's dig. Let's dig into the controversy. So and I worked, I've worked so much on fertility treatment for decades, and we had all this controversy. And I thought, oh you know, about seven, eight years ago, I thought, well, let's work on the menopause. There's so much we need to do there. And I could bring so much of what I've learned over. And I, I really, because I, I think about seven, eight years ago, it wasn't so controversial in the UK. I can remember yeah. when we all started putting things on social media, it wasn't, it wasn't controversial. We've ended up with this big controversy and then people saying, oh, why are women criticizing women? And, and, it, and it hurts. I think it hurts all of us because we're all trying to do the best for women. So, but I have had a similar problem with fertility where we had myths and treatments that didn't work and they were really being pushed. So let's let's delve in. So let's talk about, and, and we're going to use the correct term. So we're going to use perimenopause and it's this transition and we're in such a muddle. And this, as you talked about this negative narrative. And the first question I was going to ask you was about did you think it was a menopause hormone deficiency disorder, which you've already said it's not. And it's really interesting because the three podcasts before you have all been clinicians. Uh, one of them, who Isaac, who was in a debate with me um, last year, saying he thought it was, who, who then on the podcast, all three of them, um, Susan Vickrow and Isaac, all said that they didn't think it was at all. So that that was a bit of a surprise. So is there is there anything else you wanted to say about this this narrative this and the negativity around this I mean if if we're all deficient are we all supposed to take hormone therapy I'm not going to call it HRT anymore are we all going to take hormone therapy forever is it is hormone therapy going to cure everything and make us into some superwomen tell us what you think Rachel Oh, how long have you got? Goodness me. So let's talk about the deficiency for a start off. So if we are, if it's a deficiency, logically, that means we're deficient post-menopause. So if we're deficient post-menopause, we don't, why are we deficient? We're deficient because we don't have the same hormonal profile as we had as a reproductive woman. But guess what? We're not supposed to have the same reproductive, well, same hormonal profile as a reproductive woman. We are moving on into another phase of our lives. And even, even if hormone therapy can cure everything, is that a good idea for the species for us to be dependent on survival on a man made? drug. We've seen what happens to supply chains recently. Women can't get their hormone therapy. If we're all going to be on it, the whole world from, what, 45 till death? 
how how is that ever going to work? I just can't see how it's going to work. But but that's the sort of logistical issue. But I do not believe that I am in any way deficient. And my thinking about hormone therapy, and I know you were, we've talked about, and I know that some people do think that I'm anti-hormone therapy. Well, guess what? I was on it for seven years, you know, so I'm not exactly anti it. I went on it on the advice of Dr. Nick Panay's team at Queen Charlotte's Hospital because I'd been given this early menopause diagnosis. So it reversed for a while, but then it came back again. So it, my hormones went back to the normal level for about nine months, but then I was back into supposedly being postmenopausal. But actually I wasn't, I was just perimenopause and it was fluctuating all over the place. But I was advised to go on hormone therapy because I had a DEXA scan and I was found to have borderline osteopenia in my hip. So I thought, okay, Rachel, suck it up. And I don't like taking drugs. I have to say, I don't like, if I don't need to absolutely take it, I don't want to take it. But I thought, suck it up, Rachel, do it. So I did it. But the advice I was given by his team then, and this is when I was 44, so it's, what, 13 years ago, um, was that I should only go on it until average menopause age if I felt okay. And by going on my journey and by learning all the things I have learned, I was able to put in place things that enabled me to come off the hormone therapy at average menopause age and feel absolutely fine. And then I'm able to go back to where I like to be, which is if I don't have to have a drug, I'm not going to have a drug. And I didn't need it for any kind of menopausal symptoms. And I don't believe that it's a get out of jail card for me for the rest of my life. I don't want to be taking a drug for the rest of my life. I want to look at my lifestyle. I want to manage my stress better. I want to make sure I have enough exercise and the right kind of exercise. I want to eat the right things. I want to stay mentally engaged. I want to do all of those things that menopause has taught me are so important. I talk about menopause symptoms being the canary in the coal mine. I really do believe they are the body's early warning system. And women are lucky enough to have this. I think that our experience of menopause is like our scorecard on our health in midlife. You know, it really is. And I believe that my issues came about because I didn't have a handle on my stress. I had lived a very stressful life. I had moved continents several times. I got divorced overseas. I'd come home to the UK with my son and the father was left in America. It was really, really stressful, you know. And I was actually, I was in a new relationship. But that is also a stress. You know, it's a good stress, but it's still a stress. So, you know, and, and also I learned subsequently that, you know, there's even research out there that... um Air pollution can impact on early menopause. And I've always lived in the most high polluted places, always. So I've learned all these things and I sort of try and tie them all together. And I just think, you know, this is a natural process. It happened a bit earlier than it should have done for me, but it taught me an awful lot. And I do not believe that I'm deficient. And I do not believe that I have to take a drug for the rest of my life. If I'm deficient post-menopause, was I deficient pre-puberty? Should, put, put, should we be putting pre-pubescent girls onto hormones? We already put them onto hormones now to manage their period. So effectively, we're saying that the essence of womanhood is deficient. Let's put them on synthetic hormones from puberty to death because women are faulty. <laughs> I just don't. I don't buy that. I really don't buy it. And I totally agree with you. And in your book, you have a great saying. You said hormone therapy is like putting a Band-Aid on a cut. <laughs> and and as you said, it's a natural transition. <clears throat> I don't think anyone in clarity is against hormone therapy for people that have symptoms. And I've heard many women say it's absolutely changed their life. They are wonderful. And when, And again, we're not gaslighting. I've heard some of us be accused of gaslighting because 
We're saying not all women need hormone therapy. The bottom line for men of clarity is that everyone's an individual and we need to do what's right for us. And we're going to talk a lot about lifestyle when we talk about positive aging, because it's absolutely my thing as well. And I, and I really agree with you. And one of the hot topics is that hormone therapy is advisable for even those that have no symptoms because it will prevent some diseases like cardiovascular disease, dementia, osteoporosis. Now, I know osteoporosis is a bit complicated. So let's just pick dementia. Um, how do you feel about the evidence? Because we've all, you and I have read it in detail. What do you feel about the evidence that the claims that hormone therapy will prevent dementia? Well, A, I don't think the evidence is there. I think um, there are so many different surveys and different things to look at. And what, what something that's really, I've learnt a lot more about by doing my master's is how research is done and how any research is going to be done with bias or slightly skewed because of the people that do it, you know, the questions that are asked, all of that slightly skews things. Um, and I'll just give you, this is slightly off topic. I'll come back to, to the dementia bit in a minute, but the thing about the menopause symptoms. So we, we talk about various numbers and I think that was, we talked about originally 34 symptoms and then somebody else has decided to make it 50 something. And I make a joke about, you know, I'm sure the kitchen sink is on there as well. We are blaming everything on menopause. But a survey was done in a, wonder, well, a wonderful book called The Slow Moon Climbs by Susan P. Matten. And she has written about a survey that was done amongst Mayan women in Mexico. And this survey was done by a woman from Ethiopia who didn't really have much experience of bad menopause herself. She went in and interviewed the Mayan women and she didn't prime them. She didn't tell them that there were menopause symptoms. She just said, when you stopped menstruating, did you notice anything else? And they said, well, we stopped getting pregnant. Now, that to me is, is absolutely fascinating because when you don't put the idea in people's heads that they're going to get something, guess what? They don't get it, <laughs> you know. But going back to the dementia thing, so I don't think the evidence is there. I think um, the research is inconclusive. Um, and again, it goes back to my point, you know, for the evil, this, this comes from Tanya Alphazy, for the evolution of the species, is it a good idea for us to be dependent on a drug to not get a disease? I want to be asking, why are we getting the disease? Why are we getting more of it? Why do other cultures not get as much? Why is it that women in the blue zones have been living long, healthy, dementia-free lives for decades, if not centuries, and there's no HRT in the picture. That's what I want us to be asking. That's what I want us to be investigating. So it's about turning it all around, turning it on its head. I don't care whether HRT has a beneficial or not beneficial impact on dementia. I want to explore the other things. And the other thing we need to consider is that every drug has an effect and a side effect. I don't want to risk whatever side effects there might be because I can't be bothered to do the other things that I know are going to help me prevent myself from getting dementia. Does that make sense? It's a bit of a rant. Yes. <laughs> um, I have heard too many women say to me that they know people or they themselves are taking hormone therapy because they have been led to believe it will reduce dementia. And that's the sole reason that they're taking it. So these myths that we are trying to debunk, they, they're, they're really serious, really, really serious. And, and you mentioned the blue zones. So I've been talking about the blue zones a lot and lots of people don't seem to know what they are. So um, it's a great documentary on Netflix. There's also a book. Um, so the blue zones are these pockets of the planet where people have got super longevity. 
and they're living these amazingly healthy lives into old age. They've got very little dementia, cancer, heart disease. And as you say, I have seen no sign of hormone therapy anywhere near these women. And they're in their 80s and their 90s and they're thriving and they're doing everything. And, and you know, we, we've we've got to look, I think you're, you've, you're sort of heading towards this. We've got to look at our society in the Western world. Why, why are we so stressed? Why are we eating terrible food? You know, I've been put, posting so many posts recently about vending machines everywhere you go. It's just full of crap, you know. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's so hard in, in the UK to actually eat healthily. It's, we're bombarded but with these with these terrible images. And you, you talked about the symptoms, and the, the list of symptoms does seem quite controversial. So um, I did a survey, and I controversially put a list of 52. I didn't say there were symptoms. I said, do you feel that any of these symptoms are caused by your menopause, perimenopause? I was being quite controversial. I wanted to see what women said. And most of the things they said, the top ones that came way above hot flushes was actually lots of cognitive problems. So brain fog, loss of memory, irritability, etc. So what what do you think about the main symptoms that we should if we when we when we are educating women what should we tell them i think it's really really important to look out and be aware of what might be coming down the line um and i think that getting the message out about brain fog is massively important so that we stop women getting frightened that they've got early onset Alzheimer's when actually they've got a bit of perimenopause or brain fog. And it will get better. Most women think this is it. Well, it isn't. It will get better. And women who've been pregnant may remember that when their hormones were fluctuating, then they were a bit muddled, you know, or in puberty, they were a bit muddled. I think we get so anxious about everything and anxiety is one of the things as well that is a symptom an early symptom of perimenopause but then when we don't know what's coming we get anxious about being anxious and we get anxious about having the brain fog and then the brain fog gets worse and it's just a vicious cycle so i think it's really important to have an awareness of what the possible things are but i fear that we scare women too much by saying, you know, all of these symptoms. Because the other thing is um, that I learned from one of my podcast guests, um, she said, these symptoms are common, but they're not normal. If they were normal, we'd all get them. And we don't. Some of us don't get very many symptoms at all. Um, And some of us get lots and lots. So, an awareness of what's possible is important. And I think, you know, the anxiety, the brain fog, aches and pains, um, obviously the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flushes and the night sweats. I think those are some of the key ones. Um, some women have migraines and, and that's, you know, also um, associated with perimenopause. But it's all about the hormonal fluctuations. That's why these things happen to us. It's because the estrogen is going all over the place. And we also, we get that wrong, don't we? We think that perimenopause is all about the estrogen dropping off. Well, it's not. Actually, you can go and listen to Professor Geraldine Pryor on the MenoClarity live recordings, which are available on menoclarity.com, because she, she talks about and shows us a wonderful graph of how actually perimenopause, the estrogen is just flying all over the place and going crazy and sometimes rising to very high levels. So in fact, Giving more estrogen, you know, may not be the answer. There are so many things that we need to consider, aren't there? <laughs> and, and, and if it was a deficiency, then theoretically giving hormone therapy should cure everybody. But as we know, it doesn't cure many of the men- perimenopause symptoms. And what worries me is that there can be other reasons for some of the symptoms that women might be having. and and there could be thyroid problems. There could be lots of other problems that we're masking by just giving, oh, give yes. them hormone therapy, hormone therapy. And 
there was a certainly about seven years ago, people were saying, oh, it's really bad. Women with depression in the perimenopause are given, given antidepressants and they shouldn't be. They should be given hormone therapy. But that's come round now because people have tried that and realized even if you give them three, four times the dose of hormone therapy, for some women, it helps the depression. But for some women, it doesn't because it's a different reason. It's not the perimenopause. So we need to treat the cause and not just assume that everything a woman gets when she's over 40 is due to the perimenopause, which is just really bad medicine for women, I think. Did you, did you have any comments on that? You and I, we, we are the great menopause defenders. It's not all her fault. And actually, we have some things to she, we should be grateful to her. And I really think this is it. Because for me, it really told me what I needed to sort out about my health so that I could be in a better position for long-term health. So I, I, I've got a real thing uh, about well-being at the moment. I've always had a thing about well-being. I've always exercised. I've always cooked my own food. I, I've eaten McDonald's about tw- three times in my entire life. You know, I don't eat, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, I hardly drink alcohol. Some people think I don't drink alcohol at all. I do like a glass of wine. I just, it's, it's a rarity. Um, and in my career through the work I do on menstrual cycle and with fertility, we have times in a woman's life where she thinks, oh, I better look after my well-being. I better sort out my nutrition and my exercise. Oh, I'm trying to get pregnant. I've heard so many women in my fertility work say, oh, I just need to spend, you know, a year sorting myself out, getting my body healthy. Why? Why? You should, we should. Why are we living these really toxic, unhealthy lives that we're even saying that? And then, and then we get to the perimenopause and I'm with you. If, if, we, if we are leading unhealthy lives, we're really starting at such a negative place that it's, to be honest, it's not surprising that we're going to have some problems. So let, let's, let's move now more it's still related to menopause, but towards healthy aging. So in, in your book, you said uh, that about the age of 50, you felt the fog lift and you've, you've talked about brain fog. And that's exactly what I say. So for me, um, I I definitely had brain fog, but when I was post-menopause, it, it went. And I that that cycling of those hormones, those powerful hormones we've talked about, estrogen and progesterone, every month for 40 odd years for me, um, 35, 35 years ish, then, then it stops. And, you know, if you look at the graphs of what our hormones are doing in our menstrual cycle, every single day, they're at a different concentration and in a different ratio to each other. And they're really powerful and they have effects on us physically and mentally. So during those years, we don't know whether we're up or down or teary or happy or where we are every day we wake up. We're somewhere different. And post-menopause, it's a calm, calm sea. And we want to thrive. We don't want to survive. And, and you've, that's a term you've used a few times in your book. So let's let's start on the negative, And I want to finish on the positive. So we have this term, a midlife crisis, <laughs> which you talk about in your book. But you also talk about the U-curve of happiness. So tell, tell us about that. Tell us about the negative things first. Well, there's lots going on in midlife. There's a lot going on for both men and women, but especially for women. It's much worse for women than it is for men. I'm sorry, guys listening, but it really, really is. So there's not just all this hormonal change, but there's, you know, maybe we are the sandwich generation. Maybe we've still got kids at home um, and we're looking after older parents. Maybe we weren't able to have children. We're having to process the grief the final grief around losing our fertility finally, because menopause is a big flag saying, this is it, as it was for me. And, you know, maybe we are dealing with the onset of ageism and gendered ageism is absolutely awful. You know, in the workplace, maybe there's, it, we talk about women leaving work because of menopause. Well, A, the data is rubbish. 
as I've proven. Um, but B, it's not just menopause. It's wanting a different life. It's not wanting the same sort of stressful life as we have created. You know, I, that's, I left corporate because I didn't want that kind of life anymore. Um, so there's a lot going on. And we know that the U-curve of happiness tells us that the age of 47 is the most unhappiest time for both men and women. And men are not going through menopause. <laughs> so it's a difficult time. And we, all <laughs> yeah. and we also know that as people come up to big birthdays, there's more anxiety around that. You know, I know that as I approach 40 was not a good birthday for me. 50 was a good one because I'd been through early menopause and had done all of this work, you know, and come to terms with getting older. But big birthdays are a time for introspection and they are a time when we look at our lives and think, well, you know, what are we doing? Are we where we want to be? And status is so important in our society. And if we don't think we have sufficient status, you know, that can upset us as well. And the other thing about menopause and midlife and sort of around the age of 50, we cannot pretend that we've got more time left than we've already had. Menopause is a big reckoner in that respect. We can't pretend unless we're going to live to 110 or 120, which is still pretty unlikely for our generation. So we have to come to terms with our own mortality. And if we're not happy with where we are, that again can lead to this sense of unhappiness. But the U curve of happiness, it's a U, so it goes up. And in fact, we get happier and happier the older we get. And I think that's brilliant. And people don't know that. People think that they go into the crisis or the U-curve and they don't know that they're going to come out. And we have such a skewed way of looking at age. We see it as this decline. And I do not see it as a decline. I think I am going to get better and better and better as long as I live. And even when I am at my most frail, when I'm about to die, if I haven't succumbed to dementia, there will be things I can feel or sense or communicate or even do that I couldn't do when I was younger. I will have learned new things. I will be a different person and I will have evolved. We don't diminish, we evolve. We're not crones, so we're wise women. That's what you said in your book. <laughs> we're not crones, we're wise women. I'm not and we are, keen we... on the word crone. I know a lot no. I know a lot of people like the word chrome. I'm not I'm not keen on it. I want to be a wise woman. I'm very happy and I'm very happy being an elder. So I see myself, I'm you know, coming up to sixty. That's gonna be the youth of my elderhood. Yeah, and I I I I have felt that the last ten years for me have been my most productive. I think my brain has given me the best work that I've ever done in the last 10 years. And I always tell people, I, I'm glad I'm not 18. 18, I've got, I've got two boys that are 18. 18's hard. They've got so much that they've got to contend with, so much in their life. And, you know, when we're, and you've talked about this in the book, but when we're 60, or over 50. I mean, my next book's going to be Good Health and Happiness over 50. But when we when we get post-menopause, we've, and you talk about this in the book, you know, we've got to reflect about what we've, what we've done. And like you said about children, careers, et cetera, there, we've got to park them. We've got to park, you talked about shadows. Yeah. We've got to park those, that, those, whether they were good or bad issues, they can be parked. And I, I agree with you that it's a time we can reinvent ourselves and we can decide what do we need to do. I, 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 and you talk about this, about reflecting and thinking. And I think, I think it does take work. You talk about this as well. It takes work. And I, I, we both want everyone to stop and think, what do I need to do for the next 10, 20 years to be the best every year to be the best time of my life. And, and you talk about the countries that celebrate aging. 
You talk about China and France that are celebrating it. Tell us a bit more what's happening in those countries that we, we're slowly getting there, I think. We're looking at people like Helen Mirren and people, but I think we're a little bit slow off the mark. Yeah, there are a lot of cultures around the world where the older you get, the more status you get. Um, and that may not be as equal as I would like it to be gender-wise, but, you know, women, for example, in Muslim cultures, once they've gone through menopause, they actually get more freedom. They can, you know, step forward because they're no longer a danger to the men, which I don't like for that rationale, but they do have more status in society. And certainly in um, East Asian cultures, older people are venerated. In Greece, older people are venerated. So in China, they've actually, and in France, they've um, they've introduced laws whereby children have to look after or they have to be in contact with their older relatives. They can't just leave them, which I think is it's a bit of a shame they have to have a law to do that. But I think it's a good reminder because I think increasingly we're very, we can be very selfish and our nuclear families are not even very nuclear and people are living further away. One of the things I'm exploring with my masters is, you know, the whole care dynamic and what happens to us as we get more vulnerable, as we get older and how, you know, how do we get looked after? So I think anything that sort of promotes that level of respect and Confucianism is thought to be what is behind the whole idea of filial piety, certainly in East Asia, so China, Korea, Japan, all of those have elements of that. Um, and women may still suffer because of gendered ageism, but at least, relatively speaking, they have more status as an older person. They are not dismissed. It's it's a really bad thing, particularly in Anglo-Saxon culture. Um, Protestantism does us no favours in its focus on youth, its focus on work, and that value goes with work. Therefore, when you're older and you can't work, you lose your value. And then if you're a woman, then it's double whammy. You've lost, you've lost any value you ever had. Um, and uh, we, yeah, we need to change that. We need to change that. I mean, we, we, we have the saying that it takes a village to bring up a child. And in the blue zones, they are implying that it takes a village to look after the older people too. And, and I think that's so true. I think our culture, um, you know, we, we we don't do that. We don't look after people anymore. We we are looking at elderly people as a burden. Mm. So I think I think we really need to readdress that. So what can we do to educate people about positive aging? I think stop assuming that the way we do it is the way to do it because if we can look at other cultures and you know there's a lot else going on but we assume that because that's the way we do it here that's the way it is I would like us to stop seeing aging as negative I really want to change that I did a TikTok video once and I asked at what age people had learned that aging was bad and I said in I said you know maybe you were you know in your 20s or your 30s or 40s one woman she put a comment on it and she said I was five and she said that when she was five she watched an advert on the television for a face cream that promised to take five years off her age and she imagined herself disappearing completely now that's funny, but isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? And it's certainly in the UK, I mean, I hate card shops. You go into card shops in the UK and it's like you might as well die at 25 because, you know, you've got the tombstones and the funeral march and, and you know, give up now and there's nothing worth living for. I mean, card shops are just awful. But those are the messages that we're sending out constantly. So we need to rethink that. And ageism starts between our ears, which was taught to me by the very wonderful Ashton Applewhite. If we limit ourselves, then that extends out to society. So we have to change that ageism in ourselves first. And then we can go out and, and you know, try and change things in the wider world. 
when I started to see ageism, when somebody pointed out to me the cards, for example, or I saw it for myself, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Then you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. And I think we have to call it out. We have to really call it out. And I think that ageism and menopause are so closely linked. How we feel about aging dictates our experience of menopause. We know that. There is research that says that positive age beliefs add seven and a half years to your life. Well, positive beliefs about menopause mean that you have a much easier transition through menopause. So there's so, so much to do, there's so much to do, but um, yeah, I just want to stop all the ageism. I want us to really rethink our society and you cannot just write people off. And I'm just going to say, the. can I do my whale story? Because I like to tell my whale story. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, I'm getting a nod on that one. So, yep. so. We know for sure there are two creatures on the planet that go through menopause. The jury's out, I think, on giraffes and elephants and lions, but they may do too. We just don't know for sure. But we know that whales go through menopause as well as us. And when whales go through menopause, the female whales, they become the leaders of their pods. And the younger, well, the older male whales die off because they're not needed. (laughs) It's a completely matriarchal society. But... The female whales, they go on to lead their pods often for up to 50 years. They're not hormonally deficient. (laughs) And the pods that are led by female post-reproductive whales fare better than pods who are not led by post-reproductive female whales. And I believe very much in the grandmother hypothesis. I believe that menopause is designed. It was what brought our species to where we are today. And you can argue that, like whales, older women are more of more value to our communities post-menopause as leaders than as breeders. It, it is. It is great. Um, and and in humans, more men die actually at, at every age, even in the womb. Males die more than females of the corresponding age. Um, and I'm sure we're we're all aware that uh, when when people are, when we, people are older, there's more men more men die. But they but it is at every age. And, and Rachel, I didn't know that. I didn't realise that about the cards. I'd never thought about it. But now I can't undo it. So thanks, thanks for that. But let's let's talk about <laughs> this. Is it? Yeah. You'll you'll see it now. You'll go in there and you'll go. I'm not buying that card. <laughs> all right, look. I won't look. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the anti-aging industry. So I, I, I just, I mean, Botox and facelifts were things, you know, 20 years ago, 10, maybe 10 years ago, they were, they were marketed at, at, at older people. Uh, now they're marketed at younger people. And I, I, I don't know the data. I haven't seen the data, but I, it's, I get the impression. I, I don't know. Well, I know. I, I know few people my age that have had Botox. I do know a few, but in younger women, it seems all of them have had, well, not all of them, most, so many. It's very common to see young, really gorgeous girls with uh, implants in their lips and they've got, you know, very odd faces that have been totally frozen. Um, but but some of my friends who have, who have done it um, said, oh, I didn't want to do it, but it was peer pressure, which I find that find that unbelievable that adult women will feel that they've got peer pressure. I mean, how I, I think because I think they go to sort of Botox parties, um, and then you're there, and then you it's a sort of social thing. Um, I do dye my hair. <laughs> I wear a tiny, tiny bit of makeup. I know I've never worn makeup on my face, but uh, but I've never had any surgery. Um, what 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 do you think about the anti-aging industry? Well, I looked it up and I wrote in my book, but it's gone up since I wrote it in the book. It was valued at 63 billion in 2022. And it's expected to reach a value of 106 billion US dollars by 2030. 
And that's why we are fed all these messages that we have to cover up the signs of aging, because it makes people a hell of a lot of money. People make money out of making us insecure, out of feeding that notion that they're missing out. There's there's fear of missing out now about hormone therapy, and that's just Mm. wrong. I've had at least three women that I don't know who've messaged me and said that they took hormone therapy because of fear, or they took it because they were worried about how their skin was aging. I mean, what is that about? But people have got that message that we take HRT, you know, to to make our skin look better. There are people out there saying that in menopause and postmenopause, you can't exercise properly unless you take hormone therapy. I mean, where are these ridiculous things coming from? But it's all about promoting insecurity. It's all about clickbait. You know, the, the titles on the articles where they cherry pick the research data and then the journalists go with it because it's all they want a good headline so that people will click on it so that people will get advertising revenue from the articles that they've clicked on. And then they will buy the products that they're promoting anyway. I mean, now we have, you know, celebrities promoting hormone products on national television and nobody bats an eyelid. What is that about? I don't understand it. I said, you know, going back to Menno Clarity, I always used to say I felt like the kid with the emperor and he's got no clothes on. And I'm going, the emperor's got no clothes on. Stop, stop. And now I've got all my Menno Clarity founders and we're all in the audience going, the emperor's got no clothes on. Please stop, think about this. And my notion about all of these narratives, particularly around anti-aging products and all of that, is be curious about who's telling you what. Why are they saying it? What is their agenda? Do they stand to gain from the narrative they are giving you? And be creative about how they might gain. They don't need to be selling you the actual product. They could be making money from consultations or all sorts of things or workshops or whatever it is. And I do workshops. You know, I am in this industry too. But I'm trying, really trying. And that's why Men of Clarity, we've been absolutely clear. We are not making any money with Men of Clarity. We will not take any kind of sponsorship because we want to remain unbiased and, you know, uncompromised. But stay curious. These narratives, do they benefit you? Do they empower you? If they don't, then I would say look for better narratives, look for better ideas, better concepts, and go with those. So what's your advice? Sorry. I've been talking so I've done so many talks in the last month. My voice is just going. Um, so what advice would you give to to everybody, not just women, men and women? Um, you talk about self-care habits in your book. What do you think are it are natural ways that we should be looking after ourselves as we get older? Well, I think all women should have ground flaxseed every day. <laughs> it's as basic as that. I swear by ground flaxseed. It's brilliant. Do grind it because otherwise it just goes straight through you and it keeps you regular but doesn't do much else. So ground flaxseed for a start off. Find a way to manage your stress. It's really, really important that we get better at managing stress. Stress can cause Alzheimer's. Stress can cause heart disease and high blood pressure and all of these things. So we could be taking the hormone therapy because we're frightened, but we're still not managing our stress. Or I also, you know, I hear of women who are having six cups of coffee and wonder why they can't sleep at night. And I'm just like, you know, hello. It's just, you need to think about these things. You need to not, we can't do life the same post-menopause as we did it pre-menopause. And we've been taught to see that as a deficiency. We've been taught to see that as something negative, whereas actually 
I keep going back to this word, it's an evolution. We are different. We are evolving into a different version of ourselves. I actually think a more authentic version of ourselves because we don't have all of those hormones going around us all the time, dictating how we feel or, you know, how we behave, et cetera, et cetera. So exercise, massively, massively important. I think there's a huge correlation between the level of obesity in the UK and the fact that British women report the worst symptoms of menopause anywhere in the world. I mean, why is nobody talking about that because we don't want to and I'm one of the people who does talk about that and it is the elephant in the room and we don't want to talk about it because we want to carry on as we always have done and we don't want to accept that maybe we need to live life in a different way so exercise diet stress management all of these things massively important I, I totally agree. And and it is a time to reinvent ourselves, I think. We don't have to. We don't have to reinvent ourselves. But you talk about in your book about having a sense of purpose and, and again, reflecting. We talked about that earlier, reflecting on deciding what you want to do to make yourself happy. So what can, what can we talk about reinventing ourselves and if we want to? and Or, or just deciding how are we going to have the happiest most fulfilled next 10 20 years of our lives i think it's really important because it, it goes back to that idea you know we can't pretend we've got as much time left as we had and when the clock is ticking down i think many of us feel okay so what's going to be my legacy what am i going to do what imprint am i going to leave on the world And I know that through my 40s, I was getting really uncomfortable with the way I was living my life. It wasn't aligned with my values. Um, And I'd always just lived life the way I thought I was supposed to live life. I hadn't been very proactive about thinking about what I wanted from life, partly because I couldn't, partly because, you know, I had a child to feed. I was a single parent for for quite some time and I didn't have much choice. But I think when we get to midlife, hopefully we've got a bit more space and we've got a bit more room for making choices. And I don't want life to be mediocre. I I do want it to be magnificent. And I'm not being Pollyanna here. And I know there are issues. And, you know, I've got an older mum to look after. I've got family dynamics to manage. You know, I've got problems with my knee, you know, at the moment, et cetera, et cetera. We've all got issues that we need to deal with. But a life's too short not to make the most of it. And I really believe that men have made a mess of the world. And I want women to be empowered to step forward and not step back. And I think that there's a tendency for us to step back in midlife and think, you know, our best years are over because that's what society has told us. Well, actually, you and I, we're coming into our prime. I'm not there yet, you know. And I always talk about the end of my fertility has become the most fertile time of my life, you know, and it really, really has. And I want other women, other people, but other women especially to experience that, not to feel that they are written off by society, not to be written off by society, but to have the courage to step forward and say, no, I want to have this impact on the world. I want to do this, that, and the other. And this is important to me. I'm going to ask you when, when I write my book, if I can use that quote about them, that, that post-fertility has been the most versatile time of your life. It's a, it's a brilliant quote, Rachel. And another great quote you've got in your book, right Thank at the you. end, is, is now is our time. And and I really think it is, and I do think that some women need some help along the way because we listen. We all have some issues to deal with in our life. Everyone does. No one's happy every single minute of the day. I'm a single mum as well of three boys, and they've just creeped past. I've sent them off to Tesco to do the click and collect. Um, so you know, we all we all have ups and downs, but giving women and you and I and, and there's whole group of women who really want to support other women and help give them the tools to lead their magnificent midlife 
So what before we go on to the final questions about asking you a bit more about what makes you happy and things, what would be your your final message to women about how they can help create a magnificent midlife? Just believe in yourself. Believe that you're valuable. Believe that you have so much more to give the world and the world needs you to give that. It really does. Because if you think, if you get to 50 and you think about average life expectancy, it's what, 81 for women? So you've got 30 years, right? And you think what you achieve between 20 and 50 is probably massive. Well, just imagine what you can achieve from now, from 50 onwards, because you have all of that wisdom and all of that experience. And nobody should dare tell you that you are less valuable now because you are way more valuable and you're just going to get better and better. Wise words from a wise woman. Um, So I know you've heard many people say to you, why didn't anyone tell me this? So what what's the main question that people would say, oh, why didn't anyone tell me this? You mean for, for me, why didn't anyone what, tell what me you heard this? People, no, what have people asked you? What have people said to you? Why, why didn't I know this before? Why, why hasn't anyone told me this before? What have you heard women say to you? The whales. The whales. <laughs> yeah. The fact that the whales become leaders of their pods. So many women just go, blimey, that's completely shifted my view of menopause. And that's my dream. That is my dream. Exactly. When you know that, it just shifts. Everything shifts. For me, it really did. I love it. Right, Rachel, what motivates you? You're doing so much work. You're flying. What motivates you? When women, you know, tell me that, you know, they've read my book and they've loved it or they've listened to a podcast and they shared it because it was so powerful. Um, There's a podcast I did recently with Liz O'Donnell of Working Daughter. And it was about being a daughter who cares for their older parents. And somebody got in touch and said, thank you. That just, you know, my experience was validated. And so I think that that's what motivates me because I don't want anybody to feel alone in midlife. And I don't want any older women to feel devalued and feel that they have less to offer society. So when women come back and say, that was brilliant, love that, really changed the way I think about menopause, that motivates me. I love it. That's what I, that's why I do what I do. Yeah, and you and actually you brought up loneliness and, and you do talk about relationships in your book and how important they are and, and loneliness is a major issue as we as we age. And any thoughts about how people can try and reduce loneliness? It's a tough one. I haven't cracked that one yet. It is a tough one, but I think What I'm learning to be as I get older is to be open, be more open, be more open to possibility. And I write about this a lot in the book as well, being open to possibility, because it's very easy to shut ourselves down. Whereas if we are open, then things come. They do come. I never used to believe that, but it's true. And actually, menoclarity is is an example of that, the strength that we all get from each other now. Um, and the ability we've created so much because of that strength, because of coming together. And some of us have never met, you know, we've never met in real life. Um, and you and I have only met very recently in real life and yet we've known each other, you know, a long time online. So I think being open to possibility is important and exploring new things, being open to trying new things, meeting new people by trying new things. I find that's one of the best ways to do it. I have had an idea about trying to set up a network. <laughs> I haven't done that yet, but maybe I'll do that, you know, when I finish the master's or whatever. It'll be another creative idea. But yeah, I think being open and just seeing what, see what comes. 
I, I run a women's group in our town, but I know there are lots of lonely people in our town and uh, we're quite a small town. And I have put out about the blue zones and about getting the community together and maybe doing weekly walks, um, you know, maybe one in the week and one at the weekend. And and also um, we found through the women's group joining creative events. There's so, it's a big thing around here. So there's mosaics, there's glass works, there's, pottery there's um was it plonk and pe- plonk and paint or paint and plonk i don't know you have some wine in it what's that <laughs> it's painting. and plonk. i think <laughs> plonk, plonk plonk as in wine um so i think i think those are great ways of of getting being happy and being creative and having some relationships and some community which brings me nicely onto my penultimate question about what makes you happy and where is your happy place I'm in my happy place (laughs) this is my garden office and I love this and during the day my blinds are open and I've got my bird feeder and I fill it up with these really fantastic fat balls and the birds come all day and I had a woodpecker on there the other day and I have a fox who comes every day for her biscuits and she's called Rosie so I'm actually in my happy place I'm very lucky um yeah I've created this to make me happy and I think we have to do that we have to create things to make us happy because it needs to come from within as much as without but I have yeah, I have this little garden office and it makes me very happy. Beautiful. And the very last question, what advice would you give your younger self? Do not believe that ages decline. Believe that you get better and better and better with age and that it is an upwards trajectory and you have so much time to do so much but make the most of it (laughs) yes and we won't become old crones for sure (laughs) Rachel it's it's been (laughs) it's been absolutely wonderful and I'm very happy because I think we're seeing each other tomorrow in the flesh which is always great so thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast it's been absolutely wonderful and I'm sure some women are going to get motivated from your wise words today thank you so much Thank you.